there were women who reached out to me and said that, um, you know, in their own companies, a lot of women had left um, because it was um, frustrating to be held to the same standard of performance during the pandemic as they would have been in normal times. And it was just unrealistic and um, really suffocating. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. I am Elisa Steven Shields, and I'm an assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Pennsylvania. I um, work on a number of different studies related to public health and uh, evaluating interventions to uh, increase the health of, health of populations. Um, some of the disease areas that I've worked in have included HIV and infectious disease, uh, mental health, um, endocrinology. Um, so I, I have just have an overall um, passion to use quantitative skills toward improving health at the population level, um, which is maybe a little bit different than the individual level, um, since most people's first experience with health is through their own doctor. Um, and so we look at populations, which is a little bit different than uh, than others might have um, first encountered, so. And welcome. Thank you. Thank welcome you, thank to Sylvia you. and me. I am so happy to have you here. And one of the reasons why I was very excited about talking to you and interested is because of an article that uh, was written in the New York Times. Could the pandemic prompt an epidemic of loss of women in the sciences? And you were one of the people who uh, was interviewed for that article. The, I know the pandemic has hit women in particularly, um, working women, very, very hard. Uh, harder than the male population because no matter what we say, as mothers, the bulk of the uh, taking care of the family lies on us. And when we're working and taking care of the family, it's very, very difficult when you're at home now during the pandemic. And you had an almost five-year-old and an 11-month-old. And you're working in an area that is one crucial for uh, society and the other needs concentration. Can you talk us through how you were even able to manage that? Well, um, in the beginning, it was really challenging because nobody really knew what was okay to do and what was not okay to do. And so we just received notification that my daughter's daycare was going to be closed for two weeks and that they would be uh, obviously at home because there wasn't any other option for care. Um, and, um, and so my husband had just started a new job and he was working, I think seven to three, something like that. And so that meant that I was home with the girls pretty much all day and then trying to do work after he got home in the evening. And so I would try to do work from maybe like four to 11 with a dinner break, but that's after already having been with, home with my two girls like all day. So pretty much the time that um, I was devoting to work 
was like time when I was already like mentally spent. Um, and then even when things started to like open back up and we were able to um, bring a nanny into our home to help, we still, it, it kind of, you know, things didn't go back to normal for everyone. We still had, the nanny would primarily uh, take charge of my 11 month old, my toddler. And then when school started, my older daughter, I would still manage her virtual school. I was really concerned that if a nanny had care of both my toddler and my five-year-old, that one of them wouldn't get done well. Um, particularly because they were doing two very different things. Like you have a toddler who wants to like run around and play. And then you have a five-year-old who's supposed to be sitting in front of a computer screen learning phonics. And so for her virtual lessons, I um, would have her sit with me um, and, you know, with appropriate space, maybe like 10 feet apart. Um, and so I would kind of do work and then look over and just make sure that she was paying attention. Um, and that was about three hours of every day. So even when we were able to kind of um, felt safe bringing somebody back into our home, it was still kind of not fully going back to normal because I still had, you know, everybody in the house and then my five-year-old doing her like virtual lessons with me. Um, so then even when I did get to the parts of the day where I was working by myself, um, again, it was toward the end of the day where I was like, I'm a morning person. So I like to do my best, deepest, hardest thinking when I first get to work. After I settle in, I have my cup of tea. Um, but that time was like virtual school time. Um, and then like my older daughter would go downstairs and join our um, nanny or my husband, uh, depending on the day. Um, and then I would try to like switch gears and go into like, um, you know, trying to do kind of the harder, deeper thought requiring things. But by then it's the afternoon and my thinking is just not, not the same. So it kind of interrupted my circadian rhythm with regard to just how I operate best at work. You're in an area um, that has uh, women are the minority. Uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, and can you tell us how did you first initially get interested in this area? Um, and a little bit of that background. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually really excited about sharing what biostatistics is with others because I think it's a very cool field. I had um, started out, well, I had always loved math ever since I was a kid. Math was my favorite subject. But then too. when I was in high school, <laughs> I did, oh great. I decided that I had wanted to um, pursue medicine and I wanted to be, I think a pediatrician. I, I wanted to be some type of doctor. But then when I got to college, I started off majoring in biology. And then my um, spring of my freshman year, I decided, no, I really wanted to major in math. So I switched, but I still had the um, goal of pursuing medical school afterward. But then when junior year came around and everybody started preparing for the MCAT, I realized that I was not passionate enough about pursuing medicine to bring myself to prepare for this exam. And so I kind of had this, um, I call it my mid-college crisis where I didn't know what I was going to do afterward. And so I literally just started Googling, what do people with math degrees do? And I came across the websites of the American Mathematical Society and the American Statistical Association. And I just started reading different career profiles of people who had had math degrees. And I came across one of a biostatistician and it talked about, you know, um, just using 
math to um, infer like whether new treatments are effective um, and some other examples. And I had coupled that with um, a supervisor of mine at a front desk job that I had in college who had told me that she was interested in pursuing public health. And she was the first person to explain to me that public health was looking at the health of populations rather than looking at the health of an individual. And so kind of with those two things in mind, I said, okay, I think this biostatistics thing and public health thing sounds kind of cool. How can I find out more about it? And so then I started um, at that same time of my junior year of college when I was having this mid-college crisis, I started researching internship opportunities or summer research opportunities to get more exposure to biostatistics. And so I found a summer research internship. Um, it was called the RISE program and it was at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Um, I was born and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey and I was attending uh, college at the University of Maryland. So I liked the idea of you know, being home for the summer and then sure. um, learning about this new field. And so I participated in this summer research program and I learned things like programming in the R language um, and some basic things about regression modeling and, uh, you know, applying it to particular um, health problems. And so after that, I decided that I loved biostatistics and I decided that that was what I wanted to pursue in graduate school. Um, now, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, you're a woman and you're a woman mm -hmm. of color. How mm -hmm. did, how was it that you were able to, uh, I'm sure you must have, you know, just being a woman, you'd be uh, up against some barriers. People don't really want you in there. And then being a, a woman of color, how did you manage to push that aside or did you and, and focus on what your end goal was? Yes, I think that um, there are some personality factors and um, I guess family factors that might have worked to my advantage. I am the third child in my family. I have two older brothers. They're five and seven years older than me. And I think that that actually did a lot just for um, being comfortable around boys and not um, taking, for the lack of a better word, like crap from boys or, or not feeling like um, I'm I guess maybe feeling a little bit less singled out or maybe um, a little bit less uncomfortable than maybe other women might have. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just being able to um, or be comfortable and confident to assert yourself in a situation where people are talking um, or, um, you know, not, not letting people interrupt you or, um, you know, sometimes boys communicate with each other differently and they can be kind of harsh and tell mean jokes. And all of those things sometimes can be a little bit isolating when you're not used to it. And so I just think kind of like having brothers was a big part of my childhood. And um, I think it did a, a lot for my personality and just um, giving me a lot of confidence. My, my, my brothers are great and they have always said, you know, you're smart if people say mean things to you, it's because they're jealous. Like they always said a lot of things to instill a lot of confidence. And I think that confidence was something that I carried with me so that if I did encounter somebody who tried to make me feel bad or feel different, that I always fell back on, well, you know, what my brothers say matters more than anything else. Um, and so I think that was a big part of, of my success. And my parents were also very supportive. 
Um, and um, what else? I guess, yeah, those are two big factors. Um, I guess, and seeking out mentors and just seeking out, um, taking advantage of opportunities. I remember having a professor who would always invite people to office hours. Um, and so, you know, I always attended like extra office hours. Sometimes I would attend multiple discussion sections of the same class because I had heard through the grapevine that this TA was better than the next one. So just trying to find like those little advantages and, and um, talk to people and figuring out little tips along the way, I also found to be really helpful. So with how you grew up with the support of your family, um, the fact that you had two older brothers who taught you how not to take crap from people and just move ahead. Before we continue, I have some breaking news. This episode of Sylvia and Me is brought to you by Stella Mints. Did you know that one third of Americans are living with extreme stress? Sadly, this has only been compounded by the pandemic leaving millions of people like you and me trying to figure out how to cope with the ever-increasing pressures from work and life. That's exactly what Stello Mints were made for. Powered by CBD, Stello Mints are a fast and simple way to feel more calm and clear-minded throughout the day. Stello Mints start at $30 per pack of mints and come in peppermint, lemon, and matcha. For a limited time, listeners of Sylvia and Me get 15% off Stella Mints. Simply go to StellaMints.com. That's S-T-E-L-L-O Mints.com and use the code Sylvia. And now back to our podcast. Let's get back into how you, you did all this research and you decided that this was the field that you wanted to go into. Um, Tell us more about it, because in in researching, it's very interesting, and it's not anything that I can admit to having heard of before until I had read the article. So why don't you tell us what really does it entail? Um, research or like biostatistics in general? Biostatistics in general, and then we can go oh. into what kind of research you're doing. Sure. Um, so biostatistics is a discipline that is unfortunately um, named in a way that people often confuse it with bench science or lab science. Um, so it's actually statistics for the purpose of advancing health and medicine. And so we learn um, ways to deal with um, types of data that are common in health research. So um, things like survival analysis, where you have um, data on the time to some event occurring, like time until death or time until recurrence, um, that creates challenges just for the methods that you use to analyze data. So if you've ever taken a statistics class, then you might have heard of things like a t-test or like running linear regression. Um, but those methods may not work in settings where you have longitudinal data where you're following people over time and getting repeated measurements of something. Um, or when you have genetic data where you have a lot of different genetic variants that you're trying to associate with some disease outcome. So there are a lot of nuances about health data that challenge the use of um, other statistical approaches that you might have learned about in a, a like first year statistics course. 
Um, and so that's what we do in biostatistics. So it's, it's really a lot of math, um, it's probability theory um, and statistical inference applied to questions that arise in health and medicine. And you talk about, you, um, I've read that you've talked about how it affects uh, endpoints of uh, future clinical trials. You know, we hear a lot about clinical trials and people think they're, they're so hard to get into and you have to be very special. And I spoke to someone who, who debunked that, that myth. What you do is to inform the public about future clinical trials. So how does this kind of mesh together? Clinical trials and biostatistics? Yes. A biostatistician is a major player in a clinical trial from um, hearing the research question and determining how to, what we would say, operationalize that into a mathematical expression that we can evaluate using statistical inference. Um, and so when you have a clinical trial, you want to evaluate a novel therapy um, or you wanna um, evaluate how one, um, maybe two existing therapies um, differ in their effectiveness on a particular group. And so um, there are a lot of statistical principles such as, as randomness in um, randomly assigning people to treatment so that you can get groups that are similar um, and that when you compare outcomes across these groups that it's likely to be attributable to the differences in the treatment that they're getting rather than the fact that one group is older or one group you know, has this characteristic that makes them more prone to certain outcomes. Um, and then using a different methodology to analyze the data and really um, form a conclusion based on what the evidence is coming from the data is, is statistics. Um, and so we're involved in all aspects of trial design. And when I and working with different uh, clinical collaborators, that's what the terminology would use at work, but it's um, you know, different types of doctors, endocrinologists, um, internal medicine physicians, they will come to me with a research question, but I have to um, work with them to figure out how can we turn that into a mathematical statement and equation that we can evaluate using statistics and then come to a conclusion about you know, whatever question it is there, their answer, they want to answer. So with everything, I know that you talked about some of the treatments for, for HIV um, vaccine um, and also some treatment for, on uh, bladder pain syndrome and, and chronic, you know, pain. You now are, you know, we're, we're sort of getting out of the pandemic uh, place. At the time of the pandemic, you were a, you still are an, an assistant professor of biostatistician at the University of Pennsylvania. And you've since now added, you're an adjunct professor at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where you actually mentor students and faculty. How are you fitting that in with the fact that you have two daughters, uh, probably a little over five now and maybe a year? How are you even fitting that in? 
Um, I, I have a work day with boundaries. So I think um, setting boundaries is really important. And also knowing that you can't do everything all the time. And, you know, some days I have to um, make a choice about um, where I'm going to be fully present. Because um, again, trying to be fully present, you can't be fully present um, as a parent at the same time as you're being fully present as a um, researcher. And so I have my hours that are my research hours, and I have my hours that are my home hours. And yeah, I, I guess that's the biggest thing is just managing the time between the two, parsing it out, um, uh, keeping a calendar. Um, we have our girls in childcare. Um, so having like reliable childcare is a big, a big a uh, factor. Yeah. That, that's what people um, don't, who, who haven't gone through this don't understand. Um, having your children in proper childcare. Yeah. And then the most frustrating thing that I hear people say is, why is it an issue if you can work from home? Like you cannot work from home and care for your children at the same time. You will not get any work done. And so people... Um, who aren't aware um, of just how needy, particularly small children are, um, will sometimes not appreciate just um, how hard it is to try to get work done. Or, or just like I would mention in the beginning of the pandemic where it's like, yes, everybody's working from home and yeah, your children are in the house too. So it sounds like from the outside that you don't need childcare because everybody's in the house together, but you cannot get anything done for work when you have a two-year-old running around. It's just, is not possible uh, for me. I mean, I, I know sometimes um, you can do things where you set up like these like Montessori style rooms where they have like safe spaces, but even then it's for like maybe a half hour at a time. They're exactly. going to need something and yeah. So it's very limiting and very different from being in your own office where you can sit and just think straight for two hours without any interruptions. With the, the people that you've been around in in your uh, in your career path and, and the industry, do you see women dropping out of this career path due to the pandemic and everything that you've talked about as far as being able to concentrate on something that you really need to concentrate on and then giving full attention to your children when you have to? Yeah, I, um, I have definitely heard or actually from when I when that article came out of the New York Times there were women who reached out to me and said that um you know in their own companies a lot of women had left um because it was um frustrating to be held to the same standard of performance during the pandemic as they would have been in normal times and it was just unrealistic and um really suffocating um and so um, yeah, there, there were instances of, of women, um, you know, reaching out to me to tell me that um, at my, in my own department, I don't think that we had any departures as a result of work-life balance pressures, but one of the benefits of academia is that it's pretty flexible, um, and biostatistics is a discipline that um, sometimes it can move a little bit slowly, and it can be um, it's okay to have periods where you're not your most productive. Um, 
um, you can't go forever not publishing anything and not writing any grants, but it does have kind of natural ebbs and flows to it. Um, and so if you can take advantage of the good times and be really productive, but then maybe something happens and you're kind of at an ebb state where things kind of fall back a little bit, like it's okay. You kind of are in it for a long haul. And by the end of a long period, if you have enough to show for it, it's okay. Um, so one of the things that I appreciate about academia is that it doesn't have, um, for me, it hasn't felt like, I haven't felt worried that in a short window of time, I was going to like lose my job. You know, I, I, I've never been in the situation of feeling like I'm going to lose my job in two weeks. Um, you know, so there, although academia does have a lot of pressures associated with like the grant writing and um, the performance and kind of always being evaluated to your peers, there are some assurances that have made things a little bit more comfortable. Like I'll, I'll never be given two weeks for my job if I'm in academia. And so I think that is a little bit comforting or that that I'm not up against, uh, you know, this if, if this isn't my review year for promotion, then next year I can try to ramp up my activity and go and give more talks. And so kind of seeing the bigger, longer picture um, is given has helped me a lot and not to feel like quite as anxious. Well, I was going to ask you, what do you enjoy most about your job? But it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things is the flexibility. But you also have that in you to be able to do that, whereas a lot of people don't understand that and can't cope with it. So you've taught yourself how to um, be able to say, okay, if I don't have it this year, I can kind of catch up next year and do more speaking, do more writing, whereas a lot of people feel the pressure and can't handle that. So I give you a lot of kudos to being able to do that and be able to take care of your family uh, uh, at the same time. And I don't mean side by side, but to be able to balance your your life, your family life, the balance, your, yeah, and and balancing is one of the 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 biggest things that people, especially now, um, have found that they have to figure out how to do it, um, or maybe they just can't, and maybe there is something. And so when they say women are not coming back to work, well you have to take a look at who's not coming back to work. Burnout uh, and not being able to, to uh, balance. Uh, so as you said, some people wound up having to, the choice was family or career and they chose family because what yeah. else were they going to do? And then really the Everybody's job isn't there. Everybody's situation is, is exactly. so different. It depends on, you know, what external support you have. It depends on what your income is. It depends on your partner's income. Um, and so um, sometimes it might make more sense for one person to stay home if the childcare is going to you know, be more than what you're making. Exactly. Um, and so um, those situations, they're all very um, individualized and I can't, you know, my situation where I was able to find out something that worked for me, 
Um, but I can completely understand if somebody says, you know what, this is too stressful and I can find a pathway that's healthier for my family if I pivot and go this other direction. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we just have to figure out what looks best and makes the most sense and feels the healthiest for us. Um, and, and I had a colleague one time who shared her vision of work-life balance and it, it helped me a lot just to, for processing things. And she said, it's more like a pendulum. And like, we tend to think of it as this like tightrope where we're like, have these two buckets on a stick. And like, if we don't have exactly the right um, composition of things that we're gonna fall off this tightrope and everything's going to um, get destroyed. And so she said, you know, it's more like a pendulum. Sometimes you swing more in the direction of your family and sometimes you swing more in the direction of work. Um, and there are periods of your life where you can do that. So I think now with like having small children, there are sometimes I have to swing a little bit more in the direction of family, but I think I anticipate that as they get older, um, you know, I'll maybe be able to work evenings a little bit more frequently or maybe put in a little bit of extra time in different ways at work. Um, so I think just having perspective has, has helped me um, mentally. So then what words of wisdom could you give to, you know, young people who, who are looking to either get into this field or have just started to get in? What, what would you want to tell them? Oh, I would say that it's a great field for people who are interested in math and health. It's, um, it has great um, employment prospects and statisticians are probably the lowest ranking, if not the lowest, as far as unemployment rates, you know, everybody always needs a statistician and there are a lot of people who are not good at math. And so it makes you highly desirable. And I think that's also been something that's comforting for me is that, you know, if academia doesn't work out, especially having been at Penn for a while, I know that I have um, a great skill set that somebody will find useful. Um, and so um, I don't have to wrap up my identity in being successful in this one thing. Um, I would say, you know, definitely seek out mentors and, and do a lot of networking and just talk to people. That's something that I learned from my mom is just, it's really important to talk to people because a lot of informal conversations can often be life-changing and um, just lead to little tidbits of information that um, can make a big difference. So... Oh. Okay, so so now that messages. now that we're coming back to some kind of I can't I can't use the word normal anymore. But what are you looking forward to doing uh, the most fun with uh, with your family? Oh, vacation! <laughs> <laughs> My daughters are back in swim class, so just like little joys, um, and you know, just being outside and being around friends. I think probably for every weekend in the past six weeks, my daughter, my older daughter says, this is the best day of my life because oh, we've gone wonderful. out to some park. So little things like that, I'm really excited about and looking forward to. And, and work-wise, I'm actually really excited to go back to conferences. Um, it's just um, really, um, it's always a very positive and warm environment when you go to a conference and you get to see your colleagues that you haven't seen since graduate school and you get to hear about um, current trends in research. I feel a lot more connected to the fields after attending conferences. Um, and we've been doing virtual conferences, which have um, been effective in different ways, but it's not the same as the in-person experience. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. 
Well, Elisa, I want to thank you for for being here with me today and having this uh, conversation. Um, I think what you're doing is very important work, and I love where your where your head is. I, it's just great. Oh, so, thank you so much. Thank you so much. If if you come across anybody who's interested in the fields or just needs any advice, I'm always happy to offer my two cents. Um, I'm a chatter. Um, I like to talk. Um, and so you can email me at any time. I'm easy to find. Um, thank you for having me. And um, I hope that, you know, somebody finds this helpful um, in their own career in STEM or in managing uh, work and family. Um, so thank you again. Alisa, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. This has been a Life of Prey production.